Good morning, beloved children of God. Uh, you'll notice I had to bring my own water up today, so I'm missing Pete and Kathleen. Uh, I ask you to bear with me. I was sick last week, and I think I've got some allergies going on today, so if my voice sounds a little funny, or if I pause for some water, uh, just please grant me a little bit of patience. Um, happy Pentecost. Today is the day that we celebrate Pentecost, often understood to be the day that the church was birthed, was born, came into being. I think we often think about Jesus as founding the church, uh, but the church doesn't start until Jesus ascends and the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, at least that's the story as we have it in the New Testament. And so today we end Easter and we celebrate Pentecost. Uh, and so we'll be reading from Acts chapter 2 today. Uh, this is a passage I may have read more times than any other passage in the history of my life. Uh, if you are familiar with the churches of Christ, uh, you might understand why. Um, so we will read, um, and then we will explore the text and its ramifications a little bit. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It's on the screen, but if you're looking in your Bible, you can find it there. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all, the disciples, together in one place. And suddenly from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. And now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. There were Jewish people from around the world there. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered. They were confused because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Aren't they from one place? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. How is it all these rural Galatians, not Galatians, Galileans, how are all of them speaking and we from Europe and the Middle East and Asia and Africa understand what they're saying in our own languages? How is this possible? And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. They must be drunk. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these people aren't drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. 
upon all people, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You that are Israelites, so you Jewish people from here, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law, those outside the Jewish people. But God raised him up, having freedom from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. And therefore my, therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One experience corruption. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on his throne. For seeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. And this Jesus God raised up, and of, <coughs> of that all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. Peter is saying, Jesus is the one who wasn't left in Hades, whose body's not seeing corruption. And what you are witnessing now is the promise that came from him. And for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And therefore let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God, the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And so those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 persons were added. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word of God for the people of God. There you have it, the birth of the church. How many people here speak more than one language? Any folks, even a little bit? If I don't. Uh, I've tried. I am not good at the multiple language things. But one thing that I've learned in my struggles to learn other languages is that there are some words that just don't translate. They just don't have equivalents in other languages, right? We often in churches talk about this by talking about words in ancient Greek, right? So one way this shows up is in English, we have the word love. The word love translates three different words that show up in the New Testament. Agape, philia, and eros, right? So those words all translate to our word love, but they mean slightly different things. One's more focused on romantic kinds of love, one on friendship, and one on the unconditional love of God. Three different words to communicate different uh, notions of what we call love, but they just don't translate into English. One of the great uh, languages in the world, not necessarily for how it sounds in my ear, for the but for the accuracy of the many, many words that exist in it, is German. They are always adding new words to the German dictionary, putting together different uh, pieces of other words to communicate as clearly as they can. One famous word that's made its way into English because we just don't have a word to communicate the same idea is the word schadenfreude. Has anyone heard that word before? Uh, it translates to something like this, a feeling of enjoyment that comes from seeing or hearing about the troubles of other people. Have you ever had that feeling before? Someone you don't like has the bird poop on their back and you have a certain sense of happiness about that? Some political opponent on TV uh, doesn't get to have their policy passed. You're a fan of one sports team or another, and so you're really happy when their uh, star player performs not that well or gets hurt, and you feel really good about it, maybe a little guilty, but also really happy. The Germans have a word for that. There's another word they have, and please, if you speak German, excuse my pronunciations here. It's Treppenwitz. Uh, it translates to something like that moment when we think of the perfect comeback long after the chance to actually use it. <laughs> right? There's a word for that feeling. Right? You're in an argument with someone, someone does something you don't like, and, and you can't think of what you want to say. They make a joke to you, and you don't have the comeback. And four hours later, you're sitting on the toilet, and it comes to you. And it's too late to actually use it. And that feeling of disappointment 
There's a word in German for that exact moment. One more uh, from the German language is the word Kummerspeck. Uh, it translates to excess weight gained from emotional overeating. <laughs> Literally, it translates uh, the parts are grief bacon, right? So for me, that would be grief pizza, right? I can really relate to that. It's not just German. Uh, the Japanese language has a phrase uh, that's usually pronounced in English uh, without the, the accents correct. Uh, wabi-sabi, finding beauty in imperfections. Or even uh, the claim that the imperfections are what make something beautiful. In the United States, a country that is so young and regularly producing so many new things, that's not the primary way we think about what is nice or beautiful or good. We think about the freshest, the newest thing, right? This is a concept that doesn't totally translate. We don't have a word in English for the imperfect being the beautiful. It's not the way we orient ourselves in the world. In Korean, there is a word and a concept uh, that doesn't have an English equivalent. It is often uh, called Han. Han is difficult to translate, as many of these words are, uh, but it's something like an all-encompassing sense of both angst or sorrow or despair uh, at gr generational injustice. It's a word that often comes out of the experience of the Japanese colonial era in Korea that's also fused with some kind of hope that you will endure. Maybe not thrive, but you will endure. And if you pay attention to much uh, Korean popular culture, which is becoming more prevalent in the United States these days, Han will be something that you come across. There's no English equivalent to this idea. And even in the United States, there are words that don't translate well. Right? My father is from Tennessee. I use the word y'all all the time. There are people here who still judge me for that. Desiree is from here, born and raised in Tacoma, but we spent a few years living in Atlanta, and I will always remember the day she came home, and we were having a conversation, and she finally learned that when someone said, bless her heart, they weren't being nice, <laughs> right? The words didn't totally, right, the translation didn't work until we had been immersed in the culture for a little while, right? So there are... Words, phrases, ideas that don't move from one culture to another, that say something about the human experience, right? There is a culture in the world that has a word to name the feeling of when your comeback didn't come in time, right? To that specific of an experience. One of the gifts of a multicultural world is this broad repertoire of ideas and practices and rituals and words that don't translate perfectly across cultures because they only make sense in a certain context, a certain geography, a certain history, a certain practice, a certain way of being in the world. In fact, some folks have been doing research over the last 15 years or so and are starting to suggest that the languages that we speak 
actually shape the kinds of thoughts that we're able to think. That the words we have at our disposal give us the limits of the ideas that can exist in our head. Right? Because other places that might have words that express a very particular thing, you can then express it. And if you live in a place or speak a language in which there is no language for that, it can be muddled. For example, how we use the word love. We say we love everything from our grandparents to our spouses to our children to our favorite television show to our favorite fast food restaurant. And we use the same word to describe all of that. Right? And so when you don't have the repertoire, you don't have the ability to express at least as clearly, potentially. And so we're in Acts chapter 2 today. Acts chapter 2 tells us the story of the first converts to Christianity. After Jesus has ascended to heaven, the disciples are in Jerusalem sitting around with one another, not sure what to do. And in comes a rushing wind, and something like fire descends upon the apostles, and they begin to preach in different languages. And people begin to gather. And these people from around the world, we are told from Europe, from the Middle East, from Asia, from Africa, are all gathered together and they hear the sermons being preached in their own languages. Languages that the disciples, the apostles can't actually speak themselves. They are hearing the gospel through the words and the concepts and the ideas that are native to them, that are in the world of ideas and words that they already know. For centuries now, Christians have read Acts chapter 2 alongside Genesis 11 because it is so clearly a reversal of what we have happening there. Genesis chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. The first nine verses tell that story. I will read it really quickly. It goes like this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built and Yahweh said, look, they're one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose will now be impossible, will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. And so Yahweh scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth. And from there, Yahweh scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. 
I've heard this story many, many times over the course of my life. And for the vast majority of my life, I heard it told uh, that God intervened because humans got too prideful. They thought they could build a tower all the way to heaven. And God said, if they work together, they can actually pull this thing off. So we got to stop it or else they're going to make it all the way up top to where we are. Setting aside um, how we know the universe is set up now and how far that tower would have to go to reach anything like where God is at. Um, I think that that story, while having truth to it, is incomplete. It's incomplete because uh, the story focuses not on the tower, right? In Sunday school, it's really helpful. Big building, you can do a lot of cool visuals with that. But in the story, what is happening is the humans on earth don't want to be scattered, And so they all move to one place, and they're all speaking one language. And their goal is never to distribute throughout the earth. If you remember in Genesis chapter 1, God's command to Adam and Eve is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And up until Genesis chapter 11, humans have yet to do that. They have not filled the earth. In fact, they are doing the opposite in this story. They are concentrating themselves in one place. They are coming from around to one city, and they are settling there. And so, God intervenes to ensure that his command is fulfilled, that humans would fill the earth. And so we don't actually have the completion of creation in all of its intentions until... God creates multiple languages and therefore multiple cultures and humans distribute and go out and fill the earth. And once humans have done that, we have the end of the global story in the Bible. We, after this, there's a genealogy and then we have the story of Abraham and Abraham's family and Abraham's descendants. The stories up until this point are global. Creation, Noah, Babel. And after this point, they're focused on Abraham and Abraham's descendants. Until we get to Acts chapter 2 and we go global. Europe and the Middle East and Asia and Africa. And folks hearing the gospel and going forth from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. We have a movement that happens in Scripture from the global to the very local, one person's family, and then back out. The difference that we see in Babel and in the story of Pentecost is that in the midst of those languages, in the midst of those different cultures, in at Pentecost, we have people actually willing to listen to one another, to hear in their own languages. In Babel, what we're told happens is that the people refuse to listen to one another. And so rather than spending the time to learn each other's languages and communicate across culture, they disperse. In the story of Babel, humanity goes from having one language to many languages. They go from all living in one place to filling the earth. 
to complete creation. What God intended in Genesis chapter 1, God has to create cultural diversity. But humans, it only worked out that way because humans refused to listen to one another and chose rather to go their separate ways. I had often heard the story of Babel taught to me that the creation of multiple languages and cultures was a curse from God. That the goal was to get back to where we spoke one language. But I want to suggest to you that actually it's God's completion of the creation that God had intended from the beginning. That it's not that that was a curse, but that that was the fulfillment of God's intention from the very beginning. The story of Babel is the story of God intervening in human affairs to create a multicultural world in direct opposition to the desires of humanity for a monocultural world. God fills the earth by interrupting our desire to remain homogenous by creating the world's multitudes of languages and cultures. That's the story we have at Babel. The difficult thing is we humans didn't want to listen to one another. But in Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost, some thousands of years later, we have the Holy Spirit descend. And people are gifted from God the ability, the gift to hear hear people speaking in other languages in ways that make sense in their own. We are told both that the apostles are preaching in different languages and that the people hear in their own. Everyone from around the world is able to hear the words coming out of one person's mouth in their own language. The words, the concept, the ideas, the culture out of which they come. They do not have to learn Hebrew first or Aramaic first at this time. They do not have to become like Israelite Jews. They could be Jewish people from anywhere around the world. They could be from Rome. They could be from Asia. They could be from Egypt. And be fully faithful in their understanding of the gospel. One of the most important lessons that comes out of the story of Pentecost is that Babel is reversed, but it's reversed in ways that we don't often recognize. It's reversed because the Spirit enables humans to listen across difference, to hear someone telling the gospel story in their own tongue, with their own words and their own cultural frameworks, and hear it then in their own words, in their cultural frameworks. It's not necessarily the human default setting to listen with understanding to people with different experiences than ours, different words than ours, different cultural practices than ours. But at Pentecost, we learn that the Spirit, one of the gifts of the Spirit is the ability to be able to do that. We go on from there to learn that sons and daughters, young, old, slave, free, will prophesy, will 
deliver the good news, the gospel. We learn that everyone from around the world, regardless of language or culture, who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We learn that the kingdom of God has broken in in a new and a fresh way and that the spirit that Jesus promised has come in the midst of the languages of the world. Several weeks ago, I helped to preach us into the Easter season. And I, talk about, I talked about uh, the biblical tradition of bodily resurrection and that our particularities matter. Resurrection is particular because our bodies are particular. And those particular bodies will be raised. Similarly, the church is particular because the church is multicultural and multilingual. And it shows up in different ways, in different places, and while always still being faithful to the Spirit and the Lord who sent it. I have been very lucky to be able to partake in the Lord's Supper on multiple continents and in multiple countries. And it always looks a little bit different. The bread tastes a little bit different. The wine or the juice tastes a little bit different. The setting up of the space is a little bit different. The way that folks are ushered into that space is a little bit different. But it's always been faithful. It is a table where all are welcome, regardless of the language they speak or the place from which they come. I want to suggest to you today as we celebrate and remember that day that the Spirit came and founded the church, that one of the things we learn from Acts chapter 2 is that we should, through the power of the Spirit, seek to listen to the stories and the experiences and even the words of those who are different from us. And we should listen in such a way as to hear the gospel the good news in their stories and in their words. And we should listen in such a way as to learn new things about the gospel in their stories and in their words. When I was a college student, um, I got introduced to several uh, ministries that were existing in East Africa. Uh, and many American missionaries had gone over there and done their thing. Uh, and many came from uh, churches and parts of our tradition uh, that suggest that dancing is sinful. Um, and that you should not do that, especially in a church building or a worship service. However, they came to a people whose word for singing included the concept of dancing. There was no singing without dancing. The idea didn't resonate in that cultural context. In many other cultural contexts, it does. Those are separate activities. You could do one without the other. In this context, you could not. And so those missionaries showed up, and they taught folks that they should sing songs, spiritual songs with all of their heart and all of these things. They were able to convince them about the no instruments piece, but not the no dancing piece. Because the word, the concept, 
the idea didn't exist in their cultural context. And so, every Sunday, in a church of Christ somewhere in East Africa, people danced when they sang Amazing Grace and a million other songs. Because there is no singing without dancing. There have been times in Christian history where that kind of cultural difference has been cause for great persecution and pain and harm and death. And that is not the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is allowing the good news to arise from within the different cultures that God created to fill the earth. The difference in words, the difference in concepts, the difference in culture. We should not impose our stories on others, but we should learn to tell our stories in ways that recognize the particularity of our own salvation stories. One of the things that humans are tempted to do is to think our experience is everyone's experience. And that if we feel something, some way about something, that everyone else must as well, or they must be really wrong if they don't. But one of the beautiful things about a multicultural world is that God shows up and tells good news in our particular places. In our context, 21st century United States of America, there are things we need to be saved from that some other folks might not need to be saved from quite as much because they're not as upfront or in your face a temptation. Our individualism, our consumerism are things that we need salvation from in ways that other folks might not be tempted the ways that we are. And we can tell the gospel and how God saves us from these temptations in ways that are very particular with the words and the ideas and the concepts in which we think and experience the world. But we don't need to impose those stories of salvation upon others. But we can, in telling our particular stories, be then prepared to hear the particular stories of others. The beautiful thing about the church, as it came to us in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, is that it's open to everyone, regardless of language or place or culture. The good news is preached and it is heard by people from all over the world. And it is heard in their own languages, in ways that translate in their own cultures. And so my invitation to us today, as we recognize the birth of the church and the coming of the Spirit upon the apostles and then upon those that they taught, is to tell your story. Tell it in all the particularities that exist in it. Our own stories of our experience with God are unique and different, and they are real and they are true, but they might not be universal. And one of the invitations we get from Acts chapter 2 is to listen to the stories of others and hear how folks who might be richer or poorer than us, lighter or darker than us, gayer or straighter than us, to hear their stories about how the Spirit shows up in a tongue of fire 
speaking their own languages in ways that bring good news. I don't know how the Spirit always works. And I don't know how humans always work. But I do know that God invites us into Pentecost and not to Babel. To listen and to hear those whose languages are different rather than to flee to our corners and not listen to one another. So on this Pentecost Sunday, my invitation to you is to listen to the Spirit and listen to your neighbor and you just might hear good news.